52 episodes, 52 ordinary people, 52 real stories about things that affect overall health. Because there is a lot more that goes into being healthy than food and fitness. Inspiration, support, a new perspective, and knowledge. You'll find that and more here on the Health Ability Project. Hi, welcome to a special edition of the Health Ability Project podcast. I'm Robin McKenna. May is Women's Health Month, and so for the month of May, all of the episodes of this podcast are dedicated to topics on women's health. Today, we're going to talk about cervical cancer. But before I introduce my guest, I wanted to share some statistics with listeners. In the U.S., more than 14,100 new cases of cervical cancer are diagnosed and more than 4,280 women die from the disease each year. That is a statistic issued by the World Health Organization in 2022. In 2023, the American Cancer Society's estimates are that about 13,960 new cases of invasive cervical cancer will be diagnosed and about 4,310 women will die from cervical cancer in the U.S. I'd like you to sit with that for a minute because we have two world-credible organizations saying that 30%, over 30% of women will die from cervical cancer. As for the demographics behind cervical cancer, Asian Americans have the lowest rates of cervical cancer collectively, but if you look at their subgroups, they have a higher incidence rate of cervical cancer. Black women are more likely to die of cervical cancer than any other group. Latina Hispanic women have one of the highest rates of cervical cancer and the second highest rate of deaths related to cervical cancer. American Indian and Alaska Native women are nearly twice as likely to develop cervical cancer compared to white women and are four times as likely to die from cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is most frequently diagnosed in women between the ages of 35 and 44, with the average age at diagnosis being 50. It rarely develops in women younger than 20. Many older women do not realize that the risk of developing cervical cancer is still present as they age. More than 20% of cases of cervical cancer are found in women over 65. However, these cancers rarely occur in women who have been getting regular tests to screen for cervical cancer before they were 65. Let me say that again. These cancers rarely occur in women who have been getting regular tests to screen for cervical cancer before they were 65. And that is a statistic from the 2023 Facts and Figures Report from the American Cancer Society. Now, as far as the rate of women who do go for annual screenings, there's been a nominal change between 2019 and 2021 data in that in 2019, 73.5% of women aged 21 to 65 were up to date with their cervical cancer screening. By 2021, 
the data was only marginally higher at 73.9%. The healthy people goal is to increase that rate to 84.3% by 2030. That's a lot to digest, but I'd like you to sit with those statistics for a minute because they are jarring and they are very serious. And now I'd like to introduce my guest today, Tiara Wade, who is going to share her story of how having cervical cancer affected her overall health and well-being. Tiara is an artist, wife, mother, and cervical cancer survivor. This artist turned patient advocate resides in the great state of Ohio. You'll often hear Tiara say, cancer was the best worst thing to happen to her. She now dedicates her time between her small business, Set Trends, with a Z, where she encourages others to be bold and different. Also, advocating and educating the next generation on prioritizing their gynecological health. Thank you so much for being with me today, Tiara. I am so glad to have you on the Healthability Project podcast, especially for May is Women's Health Month. I am, it's such an honor, Robin, to to be here and speak about this. As you were stating, some of these numbers are just need to be talked about. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just get right into it. What is your story? And and most importantly, given the statistics of, of the average age of diagnosis, I'm curious to know how old you were, what, what age you were when you were diagnosed with cervical cancer. Yeah, I was 39 years old when I was diagnosed with stage 2B cervical cancer. And I received that diagnosis in June of 2020, dead smack in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. So that was a fun time, not really. <laughs> wow. So um, a little bit uh, about my story. Um, so... In 2019, actually, my husband and I were trying to explore our possibilities on fertility. Um, We had been together for a while. It just wasn't happening. I knew I had a history of uh, something called cervical dysplasia. And I knew that I had heard of the word HPV, but wasn't quite making the connection on what exactly it was. So I had this appointment, I had a follow-up scheduled for March of 2020, and again, dead smack in the pandemic, that appointment was deemed non-essential and was canceled. Um, So in June of 2020, I was referred to a gynecological oncologist, and they performed an extensive LEAP procedure, um, and at that point in time, they diagnosed me with stage 2B cervical cancer. I had a tumor about the size of maybe six uh, centimeters big. And at that time, that's a pretty decent size tumor, Hmm. especially for cervical cancer being such a slow growing uh, cancer. Um, So at that point, I was scheduled for surgery where I received an ovary reposition in surgery to hopefully save me from going into early menopause. Again, I was 39 years old. Um, And then I was scheduled for six rounds of chemo, 36 rounds of radiation, and then six rounds of what's called brachytherapy, which is essentially internal radiation to the tumor. Mm. 
I mean, that, that's such a lot to take in in the midst of pandemic. What, how did you react? What, what did you, did you go into survival mode? You know, what were your techniques for getting through this? How did you do it? Yeah, that definitely um, was a very challenging time. And I think that was the catapult for that moment that I had to pivot where it became the best, worst thing for me. Um, I really had to use my voice as family members, friends couldn't physically come with me into doctor's appointments. And at some times, you know, you need a second set of ears <laughs> at right. some of these appointments. Yes. It's really crucial. And I just didn't have that. Zoom was being utilized at that time. So I, I try to use that, but it really just turned into fight or flight mode for me, for sure. Um, and so you, you find yourself obviously isolated, physically isolated because no one can really go with you to these doctors and, and, I mean, did you, did you meditate? And they're just going through all of the radiation, my goodness. Yes. Again, that was, I knew that I needed some tools. I knew that I was getting ready to fight for my life. I had children at home. I had husband. I just said I had no other choice but decides to fight. So with that, I know I needed tools and um, I started to kind of seek out um, community engagement. I found an organization called Survivor, which really was a community that helped me um, deal with what I was about to face. So that was a wonderful tool. Um, and then when I started treatment, um, I had an episode where um, I'm also a sexual assault survivor. And in this eternal radiation treatment, it was very in invasive. And it was a moment that I completely had a panic attack. And it was at that time I knew I needed something more. So that's when I started to seek out counseling services from my local um, cancer center here. Um, they offered free services and that kind of was the tipping point mm -hmm. for me to kind of prioritize now my mental health as well. So that procedure loosened or or jarred some uh deep-seated trauma that you had put aside absolutely absolutely assault and so again your 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 best worst moment you're going through all of these treatments you have cervical cancer and then on top of this you there's a trigger that then drives you to seek or or get some therapy to work absolutely. that out yeah, absolutely. That really was kind of like, again, that best worst moment. It gave me the tools that I needed to kind of fight for myself. Again, I'm alone in these situations with these doctors that I've never met and extensive um, treatments that I really had to find the tools to manage and navigate my life. And with that, I learned how to speak up for myself. As an African-American woman, I think sometimes I battle with not being heard and going to therapy really pushed me to, to stand on, no, I need to fight for Tira. I have a voice on what happens to Tira. I'm going to say, this is okay. I'm going to need you to explain to me why it's not okay. And we need to come up with a plan 
So Tira can be the best version of Tira when she comes on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this this best worst scenario gave you strength, gave you newfound confidence, helped you find a stronger voice. I, I think you probably always had a voice, but then it just became quite <laughs> strong. Um, and now you're you're working with others to do similar work. Absolutely. So um, again, not knowing. I had HPV. I was actually diagnosed with HPV at 23 years old, and I did not know the severity of or the importance of continual follow-up. I think for my story and many others that when you talk about the demographics, why are African-American women so predisposed to cervical cancer? Why are these numbers so jarring? And it's simply because of a couple of key factors. Life. I was a single mother. I did not always have the privilege of being able to afford uh, decent health care. I might have taken, and I had corporate jobs, but at the end of the day, I was kind of sitting on that cusp of the working poor. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, paying an extra amount for insurance wasn't always an option. So, I would miss appointments. I wouldn't always have the follow-up. Or when I would see my gynecologist and I would ask, I'd be like, oh, it's okay. We'll see you and we'll see you when we see you. It was never prioritized. Hmm. And I think knowing what I know now, knowing how if I had been given the tools to be able to kind of push and say, this needs to happen or had a hysterectomy sooner. I think my odds of not having such a later stage diagnosis would have been greater. Mm-hmm. It's just simply not knowing. So I don't want another somebody's daughter, mother, aunt, sister to go through what I, I went through knowing what I know and not share it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Looking back, where do you think along your journey, whether you're in the doctor's office or elsewhere in the world, where do you think would have been the appropriate placements to to access or learn about HPV and I, I'm just thinking right away commercials TV commercials right yeah yeah I, I mean where else do we really learn it unless we're in a doctor's office or maybe talking with our girlfriends or a commercial <clears throat> on TV but yeah so I think sometimes Robin it it definitely does do with uh social uh, media it definitely does with what people are comfortable with. Again, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, anal, these are attached to genitalia and then they're attached to sex or can be tested or associated with sex. So people tend to not want to talk about it. I remember having conversations when I told people I had cancer, the assumption automatically was like, oh, you have breast cancer. And I'm like, no, not all cancer is pink. But because it's so generalized, it's so kind of compounded as a woman that this is the type of cancer you get. And we don't talk about the HPV related cancers. We don't talk about the importance of when you have HPV, that it needs to be prioritized that you're staying on top of your well women visits. It's it's just not talked about. So and I think the stigma, again, comes from the fact that it's an HPV related cancer. And people don't want to talk about their private parts, you know, <laughs> silly them, right? Right. I, I would agree with you on that. Tell us a little bit about Survivor. How did you find them and, and what your engagement is with them? 
Yes. So I absolutely adore being a part of the survivor community. If I could just interject for a minute for our listeners, survivor is spelt C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R in case you want to look it up. Absolutely. Dot org. Okay. We have a community that is outstanding. We have great podcasts, a YouTube channel. Please, you know, share in those platforms. We have some great things going on. So with Survivor, I actually found them um, doing a Facebook Google search on, and I was just like, okay, I need to find support. Um, I, I never knew anybody with cervical cancer except my grandmother. Um, and her experience was a hysterectomy. She never had radiation or chemo um, for her cervical cancer. So I just knew I wanted to find out what was going to happen. I, I needed to find a community to lean on. And again, during this pandemic, it was it was very, very hard. My we cancer unfortunately had been an very familiar beasts at that time as well. My daughter's grandmother had been diagnosed for the second time and then now her mother. So it was a very challenging time within itself. And it brought about a lot of trauma within, even in our own home. My husband's father passed away from leukemia. So he was in denial. So I just had to find a community where I could lean on and survivor has become that and so much more. I, I am just elated to talk about them, be involved, share their message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, it, it sounds like you found what you needed that was exclusively for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that there are other women who find survivor and find their home as well, because that's really what it is. It's a sisterhood. It's a community of women who share our stories, who are speaking up when, you know, people want us to be quiet and we're like, no, we need to talk about it. There, these numbers, Robin, the numbers themselves should be enough for people to be like, what is going on? What, what do we need to do? And how can I bring about change? Right. Cervical cancer is preventable. Cervical cancer is preventable. Nobody should be dying from cervical cancer. And that's that's a sad thing, too. I mean, but, you know, you take a look back at, at breast cancer, you know, prior to the Susan G. Komen Foundation, it was the same thing, right? Right. And absolutely. Decades of marketing and and awareness campaigns and advocacy and grassroots, this, you know, the same thing that that, you know, hopefully is 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 coming forward with with cervical cancer now through organizations like Survivor and, and other people, American Cancer Society, et cetera, to bring this to the forefront, and especially the education on HPV. Does Survivor do anything specifically related to awareness of HPV and, and its relationship to cervical cancer? Absolutely. The Survivor actually just came from an HPV-related uh, conference uh, about a week ago. They're very involved with involving the community. Um, we have Facebook groups where we have HPV-related cancer sur survivors and thrivers who share their stories. We come together and figure out ways that we can bring awareness to HPV and also preventative measures as well. So, yeah. And is there any involvement at, at a legislative level? And I and I and I asked that question because I do recall a conversation with with Morgan. Uh, she was sharing that there was. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
a school district that was uh, voting down HPV curriculum in the school system. I think maybe it was middle school. Um, if you don't teach them about it, how will how they know? They yeah. It, right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that really comes with a lot of people are just not informed or misinformation is out there. And it's really discouraging, but we are here to kind of shed the light and bring facts, not not fiction to the forefront about HPV and its preventative um, resources out there. And does survivors see some relationship moving forward? I don't know, you know, if you can't speak on having a survivor, <laughs> I totally understand. But I'm just curious to know. It just seems to me that there is going to be some kind of a dance with legislation uh, with organizations like Survivor to ensure that this is not swept under the rug or put behind the curtain because yeah. it's taboo or it's related to sex and right absolutely so survivor is definitely on the forefront our lovely founder tamika felder has actually been to the white house has sat in legislative boards she is on the move and really has a vision kind of similar to like season g coma to bring survivor to the forefront and to have it be known about what cervical cancer is how we can prevent it, and again, giving people the proper education and the tools so we can definitely eradicate this this horrible disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it seems from the uh, specifics on demographics, Black women have a higher rate of death related to cervical cancer, Asian mm -hmm. women as well, Latina, Hispanic, mm -hmm. Native American, and Alaskan Native, if that's the right. correct terminology. Pacific Islander, yes. Okay. Okay, mm -hmm. it seems to me that there's also a relationship, you, you kind of touched lightly on it earlier, between this level of demographics and statistics with cervical cancer and health equity. And we and I talk about right. that. Health equity was the topic, was the second topic of my uh, podcast. And we talk about, talk about it um, in the episode previous to this one and how health equity, which is, being able to have access to basic screenings and basic health care. Uh, and it, I would think that 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 is also part of the challenge of these different demographic groups in having these higher rates of diagnosis and death because they do not have health equity. That is 100% spot on, Robin. I don't know how else to put that. Um, it really becomes, are these conversations you know, when I talk about my survivor sisterhood and to hear some of their stories about having to drive two, three, four hours for treatment or having to totally relocate to a different state, I think about how that impact the minority or people of color, how that just sometimes might not even be something that that is thought of, or even an mm -hmm. option, I should say. Because when you think about, you know, people who are really making choices, whether or not to put gas in their car or a loaf of bread, having cancer treatments or making arrangements in order to go to the doctor is just something that they just don't prioritize. So those demographics are, are and those people are really slipping underneath the cracks because of those, those reasons. So- yeah disparities with health equity. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. 
What what advice do you have to young women out there? I mean, I say young women because you gotta <laughs> you gotta you gotta start this habit of going for annual screenings early on, and you have to yes. stick with it, and you have to catch it early. Yeah, I would say for young women, you know, prioritize your health. You only get one life. So make it the best that you can every day that you can. And your health is worth it. So show up for you every day in the best version that you can. That is incredible advice. (laughs) I'm going to take that advice. (laughs) (laughs) And you should. (laughs) Sierra, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners out there, again, just to remind you, uh, please take these statistics to heart talk it up with your friends, your mothers, your sisters, your besties, your cousins, your neighbors, your coworkers, and get your screenings, please. And please check out org. a wonderful group of women doing great things and uh, sharing the love and support as they go through their journeys of survival. So thanks again, Tiara and listeners. If you like today's episode, please like us, share us, post on social media. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today at The Healthability Project. We'd love to hear from you. So please email us your questions, comments, or suggestions, including future guests to the healthability project at gmail.com. And please like us, subscribe, and share us with your friends. <laughs>